This is The Great Composers, an intimate look at some of history's most brilliant musical minds from CPR Classical and Colorado Public Radio. Here we are, the fall of 1788, and Mozart doesn't know it, but he has only three years left to live. Meanwhile, he had just written his three greatest symphonies. He's literally at the peak of his powers, but no one's listening. Uh, It's heartbreaking. As great as this symphony is, we believe no one heard it during his lifetime. There was no audience for these greatest symphonies. I'm CPR host Carla Walker, along with conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill on our Great Composers series on Mozart. And today, this symphony, the Symphony Number no. 40, is heralded as one of Mozart's most innovative symphonies. But as Scott just said, it was probably never performed in Mozart's lifetime. We know it wasn't published. Why, Scott? Why was there no audience for Mozart anymore? It's hard to say. I mean, there's definitely the aspect of the war. Anyone who could had gotten out of Vienna away from the war. And for those who remained, things were so bad, there were actually bread riots in the streets. And Mm. I mean, let's face it, Mozart's a freelance composer. So you gotta pay to see and hear him. In these conditions, nobody's paying for anything that isn't a survival need. Beyond that, we can't really know there's such a black hole of information at this time. Letters aren't going between him and his family anymore. In general, there's not much information about what's happening in Vienna. It's just a void. So through these four chapters in our Great Composer series, we have explored Mozart as a child wunderkind, dazzling Europe with his keyboard skills. We've covered his transition to a composer of all types of music, his break with the aristocratic class so that he could write what he wanted to write as a freelance composer. He's had some fame, and if not fortune, at least he lived comfortably for a while. But now he's out of money with no one wanting to hear his music. And Scott, you just have to wonder if his father's words of dying in an attic on a straw bed with his family unprovided for... They have to be ringing true in Mozart's ear. Yeah, I'm sure he was haunted by these words. Because, I mean, in the past, he had always composed his way out of any hardship with some new genre. I mean, when he first gets to Vienna, he basically reinvents the piano concerto. And when that dries up, he writes these groundbreaking operas like Marriage of Figaro and Don Giovanni. And when that dries up, now he's written three great symphonies. But... At this point, he's exhausted any potential new genre. I mean, it's not even that he's at a crossroads. He must have felt like he might be at the end of the road. What do I do now? Right. So what does he do? Well, he ends up going back to what made him famous way back in the beginning, touring as a keyboard soloist. So At this point, he literally decides to not focus on composing so that he could focus on performing. You wonder how he felt about that. In some ways, it feels like he's throwing in the towel on composing. Well, it's certainly an act of desperation because Mozart always said throughout his life how much he wanted to be known as a composer who performed, not a performer who happened to compose. The challenge here is he wants to travel, but 
he doesn't have any money to travel. Right, they are broke. Yeah, so he pawns what few valuables he and Constanza have left. He borrows money and he literally hitches a ride with a friend and fellow Mason who's headed away from the war. So this is where we begin our last look at Mozart's life, his final three years. Chapter five, where Mozart hits the road. We're listening to the Piano Concerto 26 by Mozart. And this is one of the concertos that Mozart played on this tour where he's traveling primarily as a performer, not the composer he wants to be. Mm. So they travel north away from the war where he hopes bank accounts haven't been drained. And let's face it, the music for this tour is notable for its what I'll call lack of complexity and drama. I mean, after writing Don Giovanni and the Jupiter Symphony, his recently written piano concerto number 26 and the string quartets he's about to write are rather sunny, simple works. And you have to wonder if maybe there's a parallel with like swing music during World War II. Well, yeah, if it's wartime, you don't want dark, dreary music. You want something lighter to get your mind off the war. And Mozart provides exactly that. And one of the bright points of this tour, Mozart was told, the King of Prussia can't wait to meet you. And when he arrived, the king commissioned Mozart to write a set of string quartets for him. If you compare these quartets with the Haydn quartets that Mozart had written at a different point in his life, the difference is clear. Whereas Haydn was deep and searching and trying to compose at the highest artistic level, with the Prussian quartets, this is Mozart writing to enchant the mind and tickle the ear. This is the first movement to Mozart's string quartet number 21. And this is a great example of Mozart writing for his audience because the king was an amateur. Mozart certainly could have written something more complex, more rigorous. The guy had just written Don Giovanni, but he didn't. He wrote something that the king could probably play. And on that level, it's very successful. But if you put this in context of the tour, You also have to realize this is the first time that Mozart and Constanza have been separated since they were married seven years prior. That had to have taken an emotional toll on them. And it's also possible that that's the reason that the tour, which lasted less than two months, was cut short. Well, that and the lack of financial success. Oh, but it was critically successful, right? But that's little consolation to Mozart, who's primary purpose was to make money on this tour. He actually wrote to Constanza saying, to be sure, I am famous, admired, and popular, but people here are even greater skinflints than the Viennese. Skinflints, cheap. That's what he thought of them. Right, you can't feed yourself on praise, right? (laughs) Exactly. Soon after returning to Vienna, Mozart's financial conditions reached their absolute worst point and he tried to promote himself giving a concert and the pre-sales listed one name no just just one no his benefactor baron van swieten only one person wanted to hear mozart perform it's inconceivable right yeah mozart is beside himself and the letters that he wrote to his friend and fellow mason michael puchberg become truly pitiful 
Oh God, the situation I am in, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. And if you, my best friend and brother, forsake me, I, hapless and blameless as I am, will be lost together with my poor sick wife and child. Oh God, I can hardly make up my mind to send this letter, but I must. If it weren't for my condition, I wouldn't be forced to be so shameless before my one and only friend. Adieu, forgive me, for God's sake, do forgive me. And adieu. God, that is just heartbreaking. And that's just a small excerpt from a letter that goes on and on like that for several paragraphs. And this is a friend of Mozart's who had been a reliable source of emergency funds. Very generous to Mozart. So Mozart is, he's still at that crossroad where he'd gone on this tour hoping to shore up his finances. It didn't work. And he's he's back at that crossroad again. But I don't even think it's crossroads because... I mean, that almost makes it sound like I could do this or I could do that. Mm. Really, I felt like Mozart felt like he must have been at the end of the road. He had exhausted all of his ideas and he didn't know what to do next. I can't even imagine the desperation he must have felt. Desperation is the best word for it. And yet among all of this, he writes one of his most beautiful works for one of his favorite instruments, the clarinet. And for a friend. This is Mozart being a good friend again. To both Anton Stadler, the clarinetist who premiered the grand partita that really made Vienna sit up and take notice, but also to the widows of musicians because this was written for a benefit concert. So once again, he's writing great music. But he's not going to make any money. Not going to be a lot of money. But when you hear it, I don't think it's been stated any better than the famous Mozart scholar H.C. Robbins Landon put it. He said, the music smiles through the tears. Listening to the exquisite second movement from Mozart's clarinet quintet in A major. And Mozart wrote this during his darkest days. He's in financial straits. There are no prospects on the horizon. And if you hear that piece without knowing that story, it's a beautiful, pretty pretty piece. But if you know the story, then it takes on a whole new meaning. Right. A lot of commentators will say that because there's this difference between the the type of music he was writing and what he was living, that somehow this music is divorced from his life. Because a lot of times you hear happy music when he's going through very difficult times. Exactly. But if you read Mozart's letters, they reveal one of his kind of core beliefs that he was responsible for cheering people up. Mm. He felt, you know, he definitely had a worldview that what he's going to put in art wouldn't sink to the level that he's living but to say that it's therefore divorced I think is wrong thinking instead I think he's looking to the art to try to find the beauty in the moment and if you hear this piece in that context it it actually becomes nobly beautiful not just pretty Mm. and I think that if we understand Mozart and the way he thought about art and the way he thought about life I think that's a much better, much more informed, much more meaningful way to hear the music than to just say, oh, they're different, so therefore they're divorced. Mm-hmm. 
If you look at the catalog, his catalog of music around this time, aside from this clarinet quintet, there are an awful lot of single arias. And when you dig a little deeper into that, it's really interesting what you find. Yeah, it's, this is also very humbling. He actually is writing these arias, many of them as what we now call substitute arias. So imagine... Uh, war takes place in Vienna, and all the composers who can leave, like, say, Cimarosa. And now Cimarosa's opera gets staged in Vienna, but there's no one to write an aria to suit the voice of the new soprano. Mm. So who are they going to ask? Mozart steps up and writes these substitute arias. But I've it, never heard of this before. Right. Well, there's not a lot known about it. It's kind of a taboo subject. Uh, Mozart certainly wasn't talking about it, mm. and... You know, it, it wasn't publicized during the day. So here's Mozart writing these arias to be performed in someone else's opera. He's almost working as a ghost writer just to make some money. And doesn't get credit for him? Doesn't get credit for him. It's just, it's just to provide a service and to get a little bit of money and keep going and hope for the next best thing. Let's hear one of those ghost-written arias now from the opera The Two Barons by Domenico Cimarosa. Aria Alma Grande from the opera The Two Barons by Domenico Cimarosa, but that aria originally ghostwritten by Mozart during some very humbling times for Mozart, 1789, where he was ghostwriting for other composers because that was the only work that was available. But then he catches a break. He got the commission to write Così fan tutte. But did you know that the commission originally went to Mozart's rival, Antonio Salieri? I didn't know that. Modern research shows that Salieri actually took a shot at writing part of it and for whatever reason abandoned it. And it was because of that that Mozart picked this up and got to write this opera. So did Mozart throw away everything Salieri had done and start it from scratch? Essentially, as far as I know, he just started completely over. And... What gets revealed through this opera, um, as much as I will say Mozart was this great guy that really wanted to help everyone out, um, he also had this habit of enjoying making fun of people. He can be kind of mean. Yeah, and in this case, he thought the prima donna was kind of rude and arrogant, but he also knew that she had this bad habit of throwing her head back to sing the high notes, but then tucking her chin to sing the low notes. So what does he do? He writes an aria that jumps really high leaps between high, low, high, low. And normally when we hear this, we think, oh, he's writing virtuosically or he's trying to be dramatic. No, no, no. no. This is Mozart being mean. Exactly. He, in his own words, he said, in order to sing it, she's going to have to quote, bob like a chicken. (laughs) 
And there she is, bobbing up and down. <laughs> and you know Mozart is in the pit laughing his head off. No doubt. And this is actually a happy occasion for Mozart. He's finally making money from an opera run. Yay. But th- just then, <laughs> Emperor Joseph II dies, of bringing course. the run to an abrupt halt. Just as things were starting to look up for Mozart, right. Joseph II dies. He was an enlightened leader, as we call today, and mm-hmm. life got better for a lot of people under him. Just, Not so much for Mozart. Right. I mean, this is the same guy, remember, he said, too many notes, my dear Mozart. Right. And when Don Giovanni was premiered, he felt free criticizing it, even though he hadn't heard it. And... The, the real stinger comes when monarchs visit, Salieri and Haydn would be invited to perform for them, and the court composer, Mozart, was not invited. So he was constantly being passed over. You would think that with a new boss, a new emperor, there might be some good job possibilities or commission possibilities for Mozart? But no. Of course So not. here's the court composer, and he's not even invited to the coronation. That is unbelievable. It's incredible, isn't it? And Mozart, you know, basically goes on his own dime, or should I say his own kitchen table, because he, at this point, they have no jewels or any valuables to pawn. So he starts pawning furniture to be able to make the trip. It just is beyond me. And I, I think it's about this time that Mozart has had it with the aristocracy. Things weren't working out with his old boss, doesn't seem like they're going to work with the new guy. Yeah, signs aren't good with right. the new one. <laughs> so now, if we thought anonymously writing arias for other composers was humbling, at this point, he actually applied for an unpaid position as the assistant to the music director at the St. Stephen's Cathedral, hoping that when this aged man died, that he would take over as the music director of the Kapellmeister. It's the same basic thing. The composer of Don Giovanni takes an unpaid position. Yeah. I mean, I don't have words to describe it. This is truly Mozart at his absolute lowest. I mean, humbling, demoralizing. But then... Good news. Finally. Finally. Someone throws Mozart a life raft. Old friend invites Mozart to write music for the German language Singspiel, which is basically a musical. I mean, it's, it's spoken word, it's songs. Absolutely. Common man entertainment. And together, they write what is now known as the Magic Flute. That tune, that overture is such a great tune. Great tune, but is it Mozart's? Hmm. This idea actually appeared in another piece by one of his rivals, a composer by the name of Clementi. And when Clementi wrote his sonata, it sounded like this. (laughs) 
Sounds very similar. Extremely similar. Do you think that Mozart knew about that other piece? Not only did he know it, but it turns out that Mozart and Clementi had met 10 years earlier face-to-face in a piano duel in front of the emperor himself. And when they competed against each other, Clementi played that sonata. No. There is no doubt that Mozart knew this piece. So Mozart remembers this sonata, this tune from 10 years ago. Did he copy it? Did he steal it? Well, I think that's the wrong way to think of it because composers like Mozart or Clementi, to them, composition wasn't so much coming up with a tune as it was, what do you do with it? Certainly in that duel, Mozart and Clementi would have been given the same theme and been challenged. Okay, Clementi, what can you do with it? And then Mozart, what can you do with it? I think this is Mozart reaching back 10 years to one of his rivals, one of those dreaded Italians, and he's saying, hey, I like your theme, but let me show you what I can do with that. Possibly we can thank Clementi for this great tune from the Magic Flute, but the whole opera is filled with great tunes. And I think we have to give credit to his collaborator here, his friend and the librettist Schikanator, because he's the one who really encouraged Mozart, write whatever you want, but make sure to include some tunes that a cabbie could whistle. Well, that sounds a lot like what his father used to tell him. Yeah, don't forget the ignoramuses, right? Right. right. (laughs) Write it for the common ear. Right. So Mozart, he's able to balance his need to write high art with this idea of writing tunes that even the cabbie can hum. Simple tunes. Well, just consider the silly duet of Papageno, the simpleton bird catcher, and his new mate, Papagena. And literally the aria is called Pa, 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 Pa. Compare that with the virtuosic fireworks of the Queen of the Night's aria, which even today remains one of the most difficult coloratura arias in the entire repertoire. This is such a great aria and a great example of Mozart combining his need to create high art with the audience's need to have a great tune. Yeah, I really feel like the Magic Flute is what we might call a destination piece of Mozart's lifelong journey, Mm -hmm. trying to balance these competing forces. On one, you've got art trying to discover and invent and express the loftiest musical ideas. And on the other, you've got entertainment trying to reach your audience. And in the Magic Flute, I believe he reconciles those competing priorities into one magnificent masterpiece. Scott, he really achieves becoming the people's composer in this opera. Using his loftiest art 
to express a common message of brotherhood, enlightenment, triumphing over darkness. Die Strahlen der Zona, the final chorus of Mozart's opera, The Magic Flute, on our Great Composer series on Mozart here on Colorado Public Radio. And this brings us to the final few months of Mozart's life. We are in 1791. The Magic Flute is a huge success, and things are finally starting to look up for Mozart. Those days of darkness and desperation seem to be in the rearview mirror. In fact, he's even starting to pay off some of his debts. Hallelujah. And he was very productive at this period. He, Besides writing the Magic Flute, he also wrote La Clemenza di Tito, the Clarinet Concerto, and a Masonic Cantata, all written in 1791 in very short order. But then... Then comes one of the most mysterious events in Mozart's life, the commission to write the Requiem. There are actually two sides to this story. The first was Mozart's own perspective, which because of the whole cloak and dagger nature of it was actually pretty limited. All Mozart knew was back in the summer of 1791, some mysterious messenger shows up representing an anonymous patron who wants to commission Mozart to write a requiem and a series of string quartets. Mozart agrees in principle, but he says, I'm too busy, I can't deliver it right now. But the key is he takes a down payment. Well, this is an important point because of when this falls in the timeline. This comes before Magic Flute. This comes when Mozart is on the heels of some very desperate financial times. They're the worst. Exactly. So the money is very important in this situation. (laughs) But the funny thing, I don't know how funny it is, but this cloaked messenger continues to show up. Right. While Mozart's in Prague, this guy shows up out of nowhere. What about the Requiem? Right, like he's stalking Mozart or something. But the key is he keeps feeding him a little bit of money each time he sees him. So when Mozart finally sat down to write it, after the premiere of The Magic Flute, he becomes ill and actually rather paranoid. He's convinced that someone has poisoned him and calculated the date of his death. He thinks he's writing his own Requiem. In his delirium of whatever illness he has, he thinks that someone is trying to kill him. And not only that, trying to get him to write the requiem that will commemorate his own death. And he is obsessed with this notion. And Constanza becomes so concerned that she forcibly takes the the requiem away from Wolfgang, locks it away. But when I imagine the sense of doom and bordering on moments of terror, that Mozart must have felt, I can't help but to hear that in the Kyrie. After what amounts to a forced break from work, Mozart starts to recover. And he actually says to Constanza, I see now how absurd it was to think that I had taken poison. 
please give it back to me and, and I will continue the Requiem. And so she does. She gives him back the Requiem. He continues to work on it. Then his health takes a nosedive and he and others around him realize he's dying. Yeah, it doesn't take him long for him once again to be completely consumed by this work. And he gets overwhelmed by the prospect of dying before he finishes it and leaving his family unprovided for. So at this point, Mozart realizes he's on his deathbed and he's feverishly trying to finish as much as he can. But his hands have become so swollen. In fact, he's starting to say things like, I can taste death. So he brings in Sussmeyer, his student, and he begins dictating the work to Sussmeyer. Yes, Sussmeyer literally became his hands in a desperate attempt to finish the work. He must have been so sad to be so young to know that this work would probably be unfinished at his death one of the most important he'd never written a requiem before so this was an incredibly important work for him but you know to be so young and to have a family that he cared so much for he must have just been so sad yeah just when things were getting better right right so as it turned out he only made it as far as the lacrimosa but he left instructions for how it should continue so he actually composed the opening accompaniment then he dictates the choral part, and he brings in singers to, to hear part of it. But after the opening phrase, he, he becomes overcome with grief, and he breaks down sobbing. He says, did I not say before that I was writing this for myself? And if we hear only the portions that he actually wrote, it would sound like this. And then, that's it. The final notes that Mozart ever wrote. All right, Scott, you said there were two sides to this story. Yeah, the other side is the hidden story of that anonymous patron who commissioned the Requiem. And in the stories that we have come to know, we are never led to question, why would Mozart, when the cloaked guest shows up at his door, (laughs) why would Mozart agree to give up the rights to a major work like a requiem, something so personally important to him. Well, we now know that that mysterious patron who took great effort to keep his identity a secret to Mozart was one Count Franz von Volzig, who had numerous composers who would anonymously write pieces for him, but Volzig would take credit for them. Okay. So Volzig also knew through some of Mozart's closest friends that Mozart was in dire straits. And you gotta imagine, He's thinking, you know, maybe he'll take an anonymous commission and relinquish its rights if I give him enough money. Just think how delighted Valsig would have been to add Mozart to his stable of ghostwriters. Right. Would make Valsig look great. <laughs> like a great composer. <laughs> wow, right? this guy's really developed fast. Right. <laughs> Did it work? At first, yes. The first two performances of the work took place with Valsig conducting at his private concerts. 
and for years we got to imagine it was known as being written by him. But it still doesn't answer the question, why would Mozart give up his rights? Well, we have to remember Mozart accepted this commission before the success of the Magic Flute. He was on the tail end of some very lean times financially, and here's this mysterious messenger showing up with money. You don't have to do anything. We'll just give you a down payment. Write it whenever you can. Of course we'll take the money. Right. And every time he shows up, he throws a little bit more money at Mozart, keeping him interested in the project so that by the time Mozart is supposed to sit down and write it, he's already accepted so much money, he's virtually been paid for it. And he's been encouraged, oh, by the way, when you finish it, there's a bonus. So this was a big cash cow for him. Mm -hmm. But you also have to understand from a composer's standpoint, once you start writing something where you start to see its potential for greatness, Mozart saw this in this work and said, "This, I'm going to leave the world with a testament of what I can do. And he becomes consumed with completing this work. He doesn't want to leave it unfinished. He doesn't want to leave this mission incomplete. And he becomes overwhelmed by the whole project. And here we've come to the end of the story. Mozart, just shy of his 36th birthday, dies. We don't know why he died. Rumors that he was poisoned began to circulate almost immediately with fingers pointing at Mozart's sometimes rival, Antonio Salieri. Yeah, well, the stories of Mozart saying that he had been poisoned got out. And of course, people thought, well, who would have poisoned him? And the first suspicion was one of those wretched Italians like Salieri, who was always trying to sabotage his career. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, Salieri didn't do himself any favors because later when he's hospitalized, he actually claimed, I killed him. I killed Mozart. Well, that was in a fit of delirium and in a more lucid moment, he later denied it. But otherwise, we don't have any evidence to suggest that Salieri actually poisoned Mozart. That's just mythology. Here's the point in the story where we always ask, what if, what if Mozart had lived? So Scott, let's ask the question, give him another five or even 10 years. What do you think he would have done? Well, first of all, the Requiem would have been completed very differently. It's like two different pieces. Yeah, I mean, kudos to everyone who's tried to complete the work, but let's face it, no one is Mozart but Mozart. What else? Well, I think when Mozart found that magic formula, that balance between something simple enough that a cabbie could whistle, Mm. but something that's also high art, this formula that he finds in the magic flute, I think he would have capitalized on that. And I have to say, if he found a way to write works of art like this, where he could find a steady source of income, I think he also would have gone the other end with works like Don Giovanni and the Jupiter Symphony. where he's pushing the edge, pushing the frontier, writing the music to show, as he said in his own words, what I could write. Here's a different what-if kind of question for you, Scott. Mozart's wife, Constanza, we have been led to believe through stories that she was kind of a ditz, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. She was very business savvy, 
And after Mozart died, she dedicated her life to perpetuating her husband's legacy. So the question is, what if Constanza hadn't done that, hadn't perpetuated Mozart's legacy? Well, we might not have the Requiem at all. I mean, Constanza was so clever, she made sure to have Mozart's student, Sussmeyer. He copied out a complete version of the Requiem in his own hand and even had him forge Mozart's signature so that when Valsic received it, it looked like it was all written by one person. Right. Because he wouldn't know what Mozart's hand looked like, right? Right. But she was smart. She kept the originals so that Valsic for a while believed that the agreement had been met. But eight years later, she published the Requiem under Mozart's own name and Valsic was furious. So she was clever. What else? Well, we probably wouldn't have those final three symphonies. I mean, remember, we don't think those were performed during his life, and they right. were, certainly weren't published. She collected those among his things, and she made sure that they were published. So just imagine what our image of Mozart would be, minus the Requiem, and minus those three magnificent symphonies. And the letters. We wouldn't have the letters, which are the single most important source of insight into Mozart's life, his personality, his relationships, hundreds of letters. Yeah, Constanza and her new husband, who was equally dedicated to preserving Mozart's legacy, actually moved to Salzburg and befriended <laughs> Mozart's sister, Nannerl, so that they could collect all this information. Because Nannerl had the treasure trove of letters. Yeah, she had all those letters from Mozart's childhood, but even more importantly, she had all those childhood memories to share with them. such testimony to the love Mozart and Constanza shared. And Mozart always referred to her as if she were his rock. She was the one who created order in a world of chaos. This music that we're listening to is the Ave Verum Corpus and it's evidence of Mozart's endearing love for Constanza. It's a piece that he wrote in the final few months of his life for a friend who had been able to take care of Constanza while she was sick and Mozart was out traveling and couldn't take care of her. After five chapters of exploring Mozart's life and his music, Scott, what are our takeaways? Well, I think there are a couple. Number one, just by circumstance, Mozart became the world's first freelance composer, not necessarily because he wanted to, but because the aristocracy essentially rejected him. And in the end, his 
only viable response was to reject them mm -hmm. and therefore write directly for the people becoming, as we've called him, the people's composer. And by doing so, he brought music to the people because before, you have to remember that great music from great composers really only lived in the private music rooms or the drawing rooms of the privilege. Very exclusive, right? But now it's in the concert halls, it's in the opera house, and that, at least artistically, helped set the seeds for the French Revolution. No doubt. But Scott, for me, I think that one of the great takeaways is this. You've advocated throughout these five chapters that Mozart's music isn't divorced from his life, despite what critics say. Yeah, I think that notion grows from the fact that so much of his music that's cheerful or peppy, triumphant, is written during his absolute darkest days. But I hope we've shown through numerous examples that sometimes the music expresses grief, sometimes it overcomes grief, but always with a sense of hope and beauty. And sometimes it just expresses that thrill of discovery. But we've spent five chapters showing how personal his music was to him and how integral his life was to his music. And we've tried our best to tell this story from Mozart's perspective, true to his story. I've heard numerous tellings of this story, either from his father's perspective or from Salieri's perspective, basically everyone but Mozart's. We wanted this to be true to Mozart. Ultimately, this is a sad story. You have this incredible genius, totally underappreciated in his life. His life cut short his death so mysterious, but I don't think that Mozart would want us to be sad. No. In fact, if we were viewing it from Mozart's eyes, I'll even quote him. He once told his father, we don't know what will happen next anyway, yet we do know. It's all in God's hands, so let's cheer up, Allegro style. Final thoughts, Scott. Constanza was the first step in making sure that his story and music would continue after his death. Countless musicians and music lovers have carried that on. Now, Carla, you and I have tried to contribute to that legacy with this series. Mm -hmm. And now you, the listener, you are the next stage. His legacy, his music, his soul lives on in you. And with that, we come to the end of our story on Mozart and the end of our first installment in the Great Composers podcast from Colorado Public Radio. We're going to take some time to create the next one on a composer who was the last in line of the great romantics and suffered for being thought of as old-fashioned and out of date. The story of Sergei Rachmaninoff next time on the Great Composers podcast. Head to CPR.org to find a Spotify playlist with the music in this episode and a timeline of Mozart's life. The great composers wrote some of the most powerful music ever. They were geniuses, but they were also humans with stories of struggle, heartache, and triumph. This podcast is about understanding their point of view to connect you more deeply with their incredible music. Each episode features stories, music, and insights illustrated on the piano in the CPR Performance Studio. And if you like this podcast, explore other podcasts from CPR Classical, the Beethoven 9 at 9, a look at Beethoven's life through his nine symphonies, and Centennial Sounds, featuring Colorado performances of music by 21st century composers. Find these at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
The Great Composers was conceived and written by Scott O'Neill with assistance from me, Carla Walker. It was produced by John Pino and Martin Skavish with help from Richard Ray. Editing consultant, Cindy Carpian. Brad Turner is our digital editor with help from Leslie Smale. The executive producer is Monica Vischer. I'm Carla Walker. I'm Scott O'Neill. Thanks so much for listening. 